Welcome to all those tuning in to July's Southwest Climate Podcast. It's Tuesday, July 2nd, and the monsoon has finally arrived. At least here in uh, southern Arizona, and that's a bit of good news, uh, but we did have some bad news, uh, which far outweighs the good news. I just wanted to take a moment and, uh, and mention the tragedy that occurred over the weekend, and our hearts go out to the 19 men uh, who lost their lives fighting the Yarnell Fire near Prescott, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that in the climate context um, in a moment. Uh, today, I'm here with, uh, as always, with Dr. Mike Crimmins. Uh, Mike's a climatologist, and he's a longtime contributor to the Climate Assessment for the Southwest, or CLEMAS. And I'm also here with uh, J.J. Brost, who is the uh, Science and Operations Officer, or the Sioux, uh, for the Tucson National Weather Service. And again, I'm, uh, I'm Zach Guido, also a CLEMAS contributor. Uh, and so today, uh, I thought it's appropriate to talk a little bit about... Uh, well, the monsoon, because the monsoon has indeed arrived, but of course, um, the monsoon did kick off the, the fire that happened near, near Prescott. And uh, so the question that I had when I, was, um, when I was hearing about this news is that, of course, in the last 10 years or so, we've, uh, maybe not 10 years, but in the last eight, eight or so years, we've had some, some epically big, epically large fires, hundreds of thousands of acres, and yet we didn't hear of any of... Uh, the kind of tragedy that's occurred in, in just this, this small fire. So, JJ, I, the question that I had is, is uh, from a meteorological perspective, um, how, how did this event occur? How did it unfold? Well, it, it sounds like, uh, from what I'm aware of, the, the initial fire was triggered by a lightning strike. Um, that's from, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but I believe that's the case. And that's actually... Uh, uh, fairly common in the early stages of the monsoon. The late June uh, events tend to have a drier layer of the atmosphere, so you get more of these dry lightning events. So that caused the fire. And then, of course, the, the tragedy in Yarnell, uh, it, from what I saw, it looked like there was uh, what, what's called pyrocumulus. Could have even been a little bit of a thunderstorm, but essentially what's happening in that fire environment, it creates its own atmospheric environment and then you have a lot of hot air that's rising rapidly. Uh, and you can see from the satellite information these, these billowing clouds that are called cumulus clouds, and, and in this case pyrocumulus because it's from the fire. Uh, and uh, Isaac Newton taught us that what goes up must come down, and so what happened is you're, you were uh, pushing a lot of mass up into the atmosphere, very high elevations, and then it collapsed. And when it collapses, just like in a thunderstorm, you get something called an outflow. And an outflow is just the winds that are generating from that downward motion of mass. They uh, accelerate as they move downward and then they hit the ground and they rush out in all directions. And from my understanding in the situation in Yarnell, uh, the collapsing pyrocumulus cloud or, or thunderstorm was very close to where the firefighters were and it changed the wind direction by about 180 degrees. So in other words, the fire is blowing away from them and then all of a sudden the fire is blowing directly towards them. And a lot of times those winds are coming out very fast, you know, 40, 50, even 60 miles an hour. I don't know these wind speeds in that case, um, but in those situations you have very little time uh, to react. And, and unfortunately in this case it, it turned into a tragedy. Wow, so, so these, these kinds of, uh, these outflows, which are pretty common in, in the monsoon, I mean, we experienced it here over, over the weekend with some gusts up to 60, 60, I believe, high 60s in some places, mm -hmm. miles an hour. And so those are, those are somewhat unpredictable. I mean, is there, is there a way for, for people to be able to see this, this kind of thing coming? Sure, and 
in, in terms of predictability, it kind of depends on how long, what, what time frame you're looking at. You know, three days out, I, I have no idea where the storm is going to form and where the outflow is going to go. We actually have some pretty accurate high-resolution models these days. Some are run by the University of Arizona. There's some run by the, the United States government that can accurately depict, fairly accurately, where thunderstorms are going to form. And in some cases, they can even depict where the outflows are going to generate. Now, they're not 100% accurate. So as a meteorologist, I look at that and say, well, here's the area I need to focus on. When I see the thunderstorms develop, I'm going to be very cognizant that outflows are po possible because these models have shown us that. Um, but they haven't gotten to a point where they're accurate all the time to give us enough confidence to believe them every single time they happen. They're getting much better, though. I can definitely say that. Um, so when you see the storms form on radar, depending on how high the mass is pushed up in the atmosphere, and in this case the mass would be water droplets, hailstones, things like that, you can accurately measure those in the atmosphere. Uh, when you see those hailstones or water droplets pushed really high up in the atmosphere, 30, 40,000 feet, there's a good probability that's going to descend and generate some kind of outflow. The science gets a little mixed on how intense that's going to be, if it's a 40 mile an hour wind or a 60 or 70 mile an hour wind. But in general, we can usually have several 5 to 10 or even 15 minutes of lead time before that outflow actually hits people. So, you know, it's, it's, it's by far one of the most difficult forecasting challenges that I've ever experienced because, especially in the monsoon, these storms go up so fast and you're talking 20 minutes, 30 minutes, they're, they've reach their peak intensity, and then in 10 or 15 minutes, they're dropping out all of their outflow winds. So very difficult to do. And so these are, these are events um, during that, that occur basically during all of, of the fires that we've had recently. It's just in this particular case, it caught people um, perhaps in, in some, some bad situations where they, could, they, couldn't, they, couldn't get, they couldn't move. They couldn't get out quick enough. Well, can I jump in? Yeah. So, so I, I was kind of reflecting on this this morning. Is, and, so in the last couple of years, let's say the last five years, we've had some really impressive wind-driven fires here mm -hmm. in Arizona. But the, the thing that's really unique about this situation is that the, the, the wind-driven fires of the last couple of years uh, happened well outside of the monsoon season or the, even the beginning of it. And so the, the winds that were, um, say, the, the 2011 fire season when we had the um, wildfire push, that was um, driven by these what we call synoptic scale winds. And so the wind is howling out of the southwest, which is not terribly uncommon for this for the southwest in that time, but it was a real strong, we call temperature gradient from north to south, south sort of driving these winds. The winds are very, very strong, but they're very consistent. Hmm. They're always pushing throughout the entire day and they'll even sort of die down at night a little bit. And they'll start up the next day, but they'll always come out of the same direction, right? So when, when you have that kind of wind-driven um, fire event, you can actually organize around the fire in a, a much safer manner, right? Because you, you kind of know what to expect, right? So th the interesting thing is we have not had a lot of um, fire events intersect with the beginning of the monsoon season as of, as of recently, right? And so um, we were just talking last month, um, the three of us actually, talking about how the fire season had been relatively quiet. Drought, position, drought conditions were in place. Fire danger was in place. We've had extreme fire weather through the last couple of months, but um, thankfully we just had very few human ignitions. So now we get into a situation where we have a, we have kind of what you really consider sort of an anemic start to the monsoon season. So, um, What do you mean by anemic Well, anemic start? in the sense that these storms that we've been experiencing over the southwest have been um, driven by mid-level moisture, which is not the way you really want to run your 
your monsoon system. When you okay. want a juicy monsoon. You want a juicy monsoon, you want to have low-level moisture. And so that, and that's sort of a key, um, I think, part of the story with the, the storms that moved through um, northern Arizona is that they were driven by mid-level moisture. The thermodynamic environment at the lower levels of the atmosphere is very dry. And so that's when you're going you're gonna to put up storms, they're going to fall to a dry, dry environment, and they're invariably going to turn into wind energy rather than, that, rather than water energy and on the ground. Are those cases in which you tend to get a lot more dry lightning? Absolutely, yeah. So, so when you have um, that environment, when the storms are popping up and they have really, really high bases on them, right? And so it, we've been just moving mid-level moisture all over the southwest and sparking these storms, and hopefully they turn into rain on the ground, but a lot of times they don't. But so in that situation, um, what's going to happen is that they will rain, but they'll fall into a dry environment, right? And so that wind energy will turn into... Um, it'll, and they'll it'll, evaporate. It'll evaporate. That, um, that air becomes heavy and statically unstable, so it's going to fall. And it's going to higher up, and the cooler it is, and the more evaporation, the, the, the faster it's going to fall, and the stronger the outflow winds. At the same time, it's still convective, so it's producing lightning. So the lightning is striking into a dry environment and a windy environment. Those are the two worst things. Mm -hmm for uh, a fire situation, and these outflow winds are erratic. I mean, as JJ was talking about, they have, we have good indication of the, the storms forming, but if you think about trying to predict where an outflow is gonna go, you gotta know exactly where the storm is, is and you gotta know exactly what it's sort of, um, again, like he's talking about, is the speed of the downdraft and then the topography it's gonna interact with. I mean, that's, that's you can't a know that in, in, in real time. That, that You're not going to know that in real time. No. But these kinds, so it's so this particular event may be a case where um, the, the monsoon monsoon moisture was the context was was good enough to create these these um, convective storms that fueled this 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 fire the, the, or the winds. But that all, doesn't that always occur? I mean, aren't we always seeing fires in in the start of the monsoon season? No, not always. I mean, JJ can jump in here too, is that when you have a monsoon that starts off with really good low-level moisture, those storms will, will produce a lot of lightning and a lot of rain, right? And so if you think about, I'm actually thinking back to last, the last kickoff of um, the monsoon season in 2012. Um, if I remember correctly, we had a really good strong surge of moisture right around the July, July 4th. And so we put down one inch rainfalls all over the place, right? And so lightning is striking that environment. It's not going to spark um, storms. So it, it is about the sort of how does the monsoon begin with um, a lot of dry lightning and a lot of wind and very little rain is, is a bad situation. And I don't think it happens every monsoon season and everywhere. So that actually brings up uh, a question. You mentioned that the the moisture so far has come in from, from mid-levels. So w where is it coming in from mid-levels? Where... Where are we getting that moisture from? <laughs> Nobody really knows. <laughs> I'm not I'm getting, sure. <laughs> I'm getting shrugs. I'm getting shrugs right here. But okay, so low-level moisture comes in oftentimes from uh, the Gulf of California. Well, in in our in Arizona, in right. the, it, it, That's where it comes from. It can't get it. It can't get here anywhere else because of topography, right? right. You get over to New Mexico. The only way it's going to get anywhere, it's going to come from the Gulf of Mexico, right? And we're talking low about low-level moisture. Level. Yeah. yeah, we're talking about stuff that hugs the surface. Right. Surface dew points. And that also is a big contributor to why we see uh, limited fire activity in the start of the monsoon most of the time. When you see that uh, good push of moisture, like Mike was talking about last year, uh, that low level moisture, even though you may not necessarily get rain, what you are doing is increasing your relative humidity. It's kind of the unseen moisture. And uh, our fire weather forecaster was just commenting about that and that some of the locations that have had fires recently in the last couple days, uh, 
two, a week ago, their overnight relative humidity, which is typically your maximum, might have been 30%, 20%, which is not good. I mean, and when your afternoon relative humidity is 5%, you're just bone dry. But today, some of those locations are seeing overnight relative humidities of 80 or 85% with afternoons and, you know, 40, 50. So you're, you're, you're changing the fire environment by adding moisture to the atmosphere that you, you can't see necessarily. That's such a good point, too. And that... That was another sort of key part of the, the environment of the fires even over the weekend was the, the surface relative humidities in the afternoon sort of max um, um, heat of the day were about 5%, mm -hmm. right? At the same time that convective clouds are building, right? I mean, you have two worlds away um, and, and the intersection of those worlds of convection at upper elevations where it's saturated and a fire, extreme fire weather at the surface is a terrible combination. And, we, and like Jay was saying, we don't see that that you know, um, extreme combination every year. Yeah. Well, it's a shame. I mean, like you said, Mike, uh, a couple weeks ago, we were sort of commenting on how this year had experienced a, a lack of fire activity. And I mean, I think the numbers, the acreage is still below average for it's, it's still pretty but low. Of, of course in, in, in terms of uh, in terms of impacts and damage I, I think this year has to rank as, a, as the well, highest in, in, in record yeah and I think it, right as far as fatalities I mean this um, the, the loss of um, this is the greatest loss of firefighters in um, I think over 80 years mm -hmm. yeah, it goes back to a book I read a while ago by Norman McLean young men young yeah, men in fire. fire which was the man Gulch fire which they, they that the loss of life in that wasn't even as of 19. You've got to go back to, uh, there was a fire in Los Angeles, I think, um, back in 1910. An urban fire. An urban fire, right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. So, um, yeah. Well, um, that sort of leads into a little bit about uh, um, unraveling the, the monsoon dynamics. I had a, a conversation with a friend, and he was quoting a, a recent paper who was talking about, uh, the, the, the article was talking about how the monsoon sort of, uh, evolves and, and, and forms, and uh, he was quoting the the paper and saying that it was this buoyant air that was that was caused by the heating up of the land surface that was creating this vacuum and and sucking um, uh, air and moisture in from from the southwest. But that is uh, largely an, an oversimplification of of what's actually occurring for the monsoon. And so I thought it would be worth just just talking a little bit about. The, the monsoon dynamics and, 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 and what it is. So if anybody's got some, if anybody wants to take a stab at like, like what, so for the, for the person that, you know, wants to know a little bit more than maybe what they'd hear in a, in a newspaper article, like what is the monsoon? Well, you know, that, that's a, that's an incredible question. And one of my oversimplifications is, uh, is that the monsoon is a seasonal shift in wind. Right. Okay. So, um, the way we bring about that seasonal shift in wind is usually by a, a massive high pressure system that builds over the Four Corners region, maybe the Great Plains, and that's a very dynamic change from what you typically see uh, during the spring. During the spring, you're dominated by more low pressure events that come down the coast of California. You're dominated, as Mike mentioned earlier, by southwesterly winds, which is a dry flow. Uh, and then as you warm up during the summertime, the high pressure builds over Mexico. It continues to intensify. Eventually it will bubble up is probably a, a terrible term, but will, it will drift to the north and change the wind direction. So instead of having a southwest wind, you get a southeast wind. But the tricky thing with talking about you know uh, the, the moisture intrusion is that just like in weather and climate, there's very few single cause, single effect, right? It's never that simple. So in this case, what you have 
is it's true you're having more buoyancy and you're, you're pushing a lot of air upwards and so it has to fill in from somewhere. But in the simplest case, it could come from Utah, which is dry. It could come from California, which is dry. Our case, it tends to come from Mexico, and part of that is because of that high pressure system. It's moving to the north, and it's shifting that wind direction and helping to motivate the moisture to come from the southeast and fill in that void that's being evacuated by the buoyant air. So the, this high pressure system, though, I think I want to uh, key in on here. It's uh, in, in climatology, we often talk about a synoptic scale. Like the, mm -hmm. It's a large scale feature. It's not something that forms uh, locally by... This, you know, the summer heating, right? I mean, right. this is a what. So, what is that high pressure system? Well, it's a it's extremely large area on the order of you know it can range from several states in diameter. You know, ranging from say the Four Corners region all the way over to eastern Oklahoma, sometimes stronger. And it's a very large area of subsidence air, air that's descending towards the ground. Okay, and when you have high pressure in locations. Because you have subsidence air, you don't have rising motion, so you don't see storms, so you don't see clouds, so you get hot and you get very, usually very dry. Uh, but in our case, we're on the periphery of that. We're on the southwest corner of that high. Okay, so if you picture a big clock over the Four Corners region, we're at like the nine o'clock position. Okay, and that means a lot of our winds are coming from the southeast because the winds would spin clockwise around the clock. Winds are coming from the southeast or the six o'clock direction. So since we're not directly underneath the high, we're outside of that large area of subsidence air. And we actually get a lot of rising motion because of the heat energy combined with the moisture and combined with the uh, topographics, the mountains. That air runs into the mountains, it has to go somewhere, so it goes up, uh, and it forms into thunderstorms and we get uh, outstanding lightning displays. So we have this this high pressure ridge that is migrating north, um, and that and that's a it's a dis, it's 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 a zone of descending subsidence mm -hmm. air, and so that's a that's a feature that's that's going on in in the winter, for instance, it's to our to our south. Well, is, is this sort of just are we moving it north and south as the seasons occur? We are. I mean, so <clears throat> if we think about it, there's another sort of sort of cross sectional way to sort of think about the dynamics globally, right? And so the um, Throughout this term, the Hadley cell circulation, which you know, may your, the listeners may or may not sort of have that jump right to mind what that conceptually is, but just sort of to try to walk you through conceptually what, what happens, and it's exactly what JJ said earlier: is what goes up must come down. We have a conservation of mass in the atmosphere, so the sun's energy is driving um, rising air along around the equatorial region, around the tropics, all the time, right? Okay, and so. But the area of the most intense rising air, which we call the intertropical convergence zone, is going to follow the sun angle. It's going to follow the sun angle a little bit north in the northern hemisphere summer, and it's going to it's going to follow it south when we go to southern hemisphere summer, right? So that intense rising air has got to come down somewhere, and so what it does to come down is it comes down in what we call these semi permanent semi permanent subtropical highs. The Bermuda high pressure is one of these, and we actually ours is called the East Pacific subtropical high. If you, if you look at it from a climatological perspective. So when we talk about sort of the monsoon flow and this, um, this subsiding or the sinking air in it, um, we're kind of talking about this sort of amorphous blob of the Bermuda High and the East Pacific subtropical high sort of kind of joining forces. And when that, um, that blob of um, um, high pressure or sinking air sort of moves north of us, we call that a ridge of high pressure. And as JJ was describing, that then puts us into a subtropical easterly flow. And it, what's really critical about what JJ says too is that 
if the high pressure is right over us, it can um, make a really hostile environment for thunderstorms to, to form in, right? Because what ends up happening is that the mid-levels of the atmosphere warm up a little bit, and that kills it. So what you really need is to have, what's actually happening right now is the ridge to actually get north of us, and the hotter temperatures are actually north of us right now. So there's a little bit of, um, a little bit of cooling at the mid-levels um, just south of the ridge position. So that's why the ridge position becomes really important to have that favorable convective environment. And then, as JJ was talking about too, then you're really looking for low-level moisture sources, you're looking for steering flows, you're looking for the, that profile of temperatures in the atmosphere. It's so, so many features and factors, and then what happened the previous day, and right. then, holy cow, it just gets you know the litany of the list of a forecaster has to worry about. So one could key then in onto the position of the ridge, and, and, and during those, 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 those periods during the monsoon where we don't experience any rain, the monsoon breaks, you know, a week or so, or maybe a little bit longer, it's because that position of that ridge has actually shifted. And well, oftentimes it shifts there's south. Some, oh, sure, and JJ can talk more about this. The wobbling of the ridge is a big problem. Um, but I think there's sort of some interesting thing that I should kind of point out what's going on right now is that um, I'm an avid reader of Bob Maddox's um, Med Weather blog, and he kind of pointed out one of his recent posts was that here we have this perfect ridge in a perfect position, and we've got, um, kind of an anemic uh, monsoon because all we have is we're just sort of moving mid-level moisture around and we're trying to saturate the atmosphere from the top down which is not an efficient way so we need that so, slug from the south exactly from low you need level it. and this is where um, we've all been sort of expectantly waiting for something to kick off a surge of low-level moisture because if you have those two things together if you're really great um, sopping wet dew points which we don't see all that often but if you can have that in the low deserts and this great easterly flow, you can do great things with widespread precipitation and that kind of stuff. It looks like we're, we're doing it the hard way right now <laughs> as far as kicking off the monsoons. Well, hope, hopefully it'll ramp up. Um, so just in the little bit that we have uh, left here, uh, I wanted to turn back. We had a monsoon briefing uh, June 20th where we um, looked at the, the seasonal outlook for the monsoon and um, not surprisingly, it was sort of a coin flip. Um, and uh, you know, there was a very good question at the end of it. Somebody raised their hand and was like, so more or less they said, you know, we, we sat through it, you know, 30 minutes, some, some really good, interesting information, but the, the punchline became, we don't really, we don't really know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and some of that is because of what you guys just talked about, all, the, the, the complexity with it. Um, now we, we have better knowledge of what's gonna happen in the next, you know, week or so, JJ, from from what you guys do with the, with the forecasting, but looking further out, it is much more difficult. And so the question that I have, I don't know who who wants to take this. <laughs> I don't. I don't think I want to take it. But um, from a climate perspective, what should be our message prior to the monsoon? I mean, should we sort of throw our hands up and say nobody really knows? You know, our you know you know what I'm saying? I mean, what 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 do we have to go by? I guess is it's a question because everybody's asking me what's going to happen for the monsoon, and 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 I basically resorted to nobody know nobody knows, but that's not a very satisfying answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's 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 definitely not a very satisfying answer. Although I would say, as as meteorologists and climatologists, sometimes that's the only acceptable answer, and we just have it's to honest. be okay yeah, right. with yeah. saying I really don't know this year. And it's not because I'm dumb. It's not because I don't understand the science. Because it's just at this point so mixed. It, it, we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, what we do know is that 
weather will happen. We will get thunderstorms. We will see downburst winds. We will see lightning. We will see maybe some hail, not a lot. Uh, and we'll see flash flooding. Every year we see it. Now, is it going to be anomalously high this year, anomalously low? I can't necessarily tell you, but I can definitely uh, indicate what you need to do to be prepared for these types of activities uh, when they do occur. Um, and I think, at least from our perspective, you know, we have people in our office that have been here for 10, 20 years, and it's a head scratcher every year. And it's, for me, it's because the features are so much subtler, so much more subtle, I should say, than in the winter. In the winter, we're driven by large low pressure systems that come out of California. And all of these large scale atmospheric circulations or ocean uh, events, like we talk about El Nino or, or Madden Julian oscillation, all these things. Uh, a lot of times they, they impact those low pressure events more than they do our monsoonal uh, subtleties, if you will. So, and you can, you can look at all the correlations. And so it's very well correlated in the winter in Arizona with these low pressure systems. Correlation dies a little bit in the summer because it's the subtle features, the high. If it shifts a little bit, 100, 100 miles one way or the other, maybe we dry out a lot. And the other features that are very difficult, in my understanding, for these, these patterns to analyze or correlate well are these easterly waves. That could be dying tropical systems. It could be just a nice weak low pressure system in the mid or upper levels of the atmosphere that come from east to west uh, into Arizona. And when those happen, especially if we have that moisture uh, in place, we can have a lot of widespread heavy rain events. And all of a sudden you go from a dry monsoon to a wet monsoon in three days. Three days. Yeah, but uh, not but. Uh, that's all good. But as a you know, as a climatologist who's you know trying to look at you know patterns over longer periods of time. I mean, we don't even have much to go by in terms of the, the historical record and looking at trends and seeing you know if the monsoon has had the character of the monsoon has shifted in some sort of you know uniform way. Yeah, I, I think that, I think that's. You know, as JJ just pointed out, I think is a is a perfect example of um, two or three days can make a dry monsoon into a wet monsoon, right? An event, mm -hmm. right? And so when we're talking about weather events, we're trying to analyze them climatologically. It's really difficult to try to make connections between sort of systematic change over time and the caprice, capriciousness of weather within a season, right? So if if you look at some of the records, um, there are so many different pathways to getting to the average at the end of a monsoon or a dry monsoon or a wet monsoon that it's very few years actually look similar to each other, right? <laughs> because there's such interesting combinations of weather events that unfold early in the season, late in the season. It actually, and it really critically depends on where you are at across the Southwest as far as your climatological expectations. But I think it does go back to what JJ said is, is that it will start raining it, without fail, mm -hmm. without fail it starts raining and looking at sort of two Sundays in particular, it's sometime in the beginning of July, and it will stop raining in the end of September, just without fail. I mean, we can look at, I'm looking at 100 years of data sort of locally here. I mean, when we start looking at triggering records, yeah, there's some more extreme events out there. But when you look at sort of the most probable expectations of how the monsoon season sort of turns out, there's rainfall in there somewhere. Sometimes it's better than others. Sometimes it rains where you want it to rain. Often it doesn't rain where you want it to rain. Um, but it will rain. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, that was that was pretty pretty interesting, JJ. Thank you for for joining us, Mike. Again, thanks uh, as always. Um, so for you, for those of you who are tuning in, uh, you'll be able to access this podcast on both the the Clemus website, which is www.clemus.arizona.edu, C L I M A S.arizona.edu. 
It's also on the Southwest Climate Change Network site, which is www.southwestclimatechange.org. Um, and there's also a bunch of uh, information or resources on both those sites about the monsoon and other things climate. So um, thanks, everybody, for tuning in and uh, probably come back next month and talk a little bit more monsoon, recap a little bit what's, what's happened so far. See you next month.